Hi, and welcome to IndieWire's Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast. My name is Crystal Fault, I'm the editor of the Toolkit, and my guest today is the director of the wonderful new film, A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, Marielle Heller, uh, who was on last year for um, her other wonderful film, uh, Can You Please Forgive Me? Uh, I fuck up that title. <laughs> Everybody does, I though, do. Chris. It's so not just you. This is the when we were picking that title, I told them to change the name. <laughs> Leave that out. <laughs> um, you know, I feel like because I feel it's like kind of at the heart of this, uh, and what what is what is interesting, and, and I think probably also difficult about, about this film is, you know, you have a different experience watching Mister Rogers as as a parent. And mm. it is this it is this thing where it's this teaching tool about emotions. But I can't tell you how many times, if it's Daniel Tiger or the old episodes, I end up having an awareness of my emotions and like the anger or whatever's going yeah. on. And it's, it's, it's a really weird, ex- you're using this thing as a teaching tool, but it, what happens to you when you see it through this lens of being a parent is completely different. And the reason I bring this up is because to be honest with you, like this is like kind of at the heart of what is so fascinating yeah. about this film is how you can do an adult emotion story with, with Mr. Rogers. Well, unfortunately, a lot of the lessons that Mr. Rogers was helping kids work through are the things that we all still need help figuring out in our own lives. I mean, how far do we get in our evolution before we kind of stop growing and learning, you know? And especially in this day and age, I feel like a lot of the things that he was helping kids, you know, finding words for their emotions, finding ways, healthy ways to cope with their emotions, listening skills, understanding other people. These are things we don't even really value that much right now in our society. They're not like the, the things that our leaders are showing us or that we're we're we don't have a ton of role models who are showing us how to do these things. So just feels like we need those lessons even more but I think it's true there's something also about parenting that we don't talk about how challenging it is for ourselves in terms of our emotional well-being how much we have to call on our higher selves in order to be patient parents and how often we fail you're trying to help them figure out what to deal with their anger and you're just like oh Jesus what did I just do with my anger today I know did I just act like a four-year-old when I was trying to scold my child for acting like a four-year-old you know, because I think one of the things I want to get into here is is that, you know, at this time of year, and we, I do a lot of these interviews, it's like always about this difficulty of how to pull off this movie, maybe this shot or this creating yeah. this world. And to me, what is so fascinating about this is I think that this film has something, and because you pull it off so effortlessly, I, th- I think it's worth pulling off how you actually, stepping back and how you did it, because I think there is an element for example, if I had been pitched the story, and not that anybody was, but I, this idea of, oh, we're going to handle someone, Mr. Rogers is going to help an adult mm-hmm. go through this mm-hmm. emotions, and he's in full Mr. Rogers mode. That is a very difficult, I, 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 it's a hard thing to navigate. Right. And to be honest with you, so much of even just this, I, I'd love to just jump into this opening scene, because it seems like in there is so many yeah. of the ways that you, you, you and your team ended up solving this, you know, and... It starts, just even this decision to start in Mr. Rogers' show, Mm -hmm. you know, and and that that Lloyd story is going to take part in Mr. Rogers' show without it being something ironic and breaking, you know, it's like, it's, I I don't know if that was in the script, but even just that idea of that's how you have to start this. It was in the script. You know, I mean, this movie is trying to do something on a lot of levels all at the same time, and it is something that is actually deep. There was... An article I read about the movie that I really liked that was basically saying it's it's easy to look at this movie as a feel-good movie or whatever, but it's actually asking us to do the 
harder work of digging deep and forgiveness and the things that Mr. Rogers talked about that are not easy. And the movie is asking us to do that hard work too. We always imagined it as a, an episode of Mr. Rogers for adults, essentially. Um, but what would that be, right? What is that bigger arc? And this that could fall into sticks. That could e- fall into sticks so, so easily. easily. It has to be grounded in truth. That's always the first thing. And so when I approached the project in the beginning and got the script, which was so beautiful and made me cry, but it was all all about how do we make this story of this journalist and the his own journey of becoming a parent. How do we make that feel like it's complex enough, deep enough, and grounded in truth that that we connect and feel like it matters? And um, it's obviously based on this real story of Tom Juneau, who had a deep relationship with Mr. Rogers. But everybody who talks about their relationship they had with Fred Rogers, if they were close with him, has said, you know, he he asked a lot of them. He asked people to go deep within themselves he pushes people he has this way and that's why I always joke that he's the antagonist of the movie not the protagonist of the movie but he has this way of eliciting change out of the people around him by probing and asking deep questions and not giving up on them and that's sort of what this movie does too I think it's asking all of us to kind of go deeper in our examination of what our humanity is as adults and part of this is is even getting into the cadence of him yes because you know because there's an element here of even just the way he talks that could feel like talking to a four-year-old right but he's talking to us right and so there's an element I even I imagine even just some of these choices about how to shoot that right you know so it doesn't well there's a difference between talking down to somebody Mm -hmm. and talking simply and I think Fred knew that there even when he spoke to kids he never spoke down to them he just spoke simply Mm -hmm. um and that is also about a huge amount of truth, you know? I remember when we when we shot that opening scene of the movie, the movie opens just like an episode of Mr. Rogers, but all of a sudden it's Tom Hanks coming out there instead of the real Fred Rogers, and he's singing right to us, and he's looking down the, down the barrel of the lens, and he's um, addressing us directly and with all of the pauses and all of that. And I remember we, the day we filmed that scene, we filmed in Pittsburgh in WQED, which is where the real Mr. Rogers filmed his show, And it was our first day that we were unveiling the set that we had spent months meticulously recreating from the original blueprints with so much care and love. And the exact thing you're talking about is how do I find a way to get this performance out of Tom Hanks that's going to feel so true and not feel like mimicry and not feel like it's talking down and that hits toes this line that's so specific And we show up to the set that day, and it felt like there were hundreds of people there. I'm sure it wasn't hundreds, but there were all these people who had shown up. Everybody's so excited to see Tom Hanks do the song, do the sweater in the real set. People who had worked on the show, but also just fans or friends or friends of friends. And everybody, I remember looking around the room and thinking it felt like there were just hundreds of eyes on us. And I thought, how is Tom going to do this? Like, this is so much pressure, so much expectation. And I had this moment, I feel as a director, so much of what I have to do is protect my actors, where I looked around and I thought, I'm going to piss everybody off, but I'm kicking everyone out. No one gets to be in here while we do this. And I turned to my producers and I said, I'm sorry, you all have to leave. And anyone who didn't have to be there, anyone from the costume department who didn't, was out. And, um, the purpose was really to try to gain the intimacy I knew we needed. And I, 
I think what I said to Tom was something along the lines of, I want you to picture your grandchild on the other side of the lens, and we're only going to do this for her. Mm-hmm. Which is how he talked. He Which always, is how he talked. Yeah. And, and it was so liberating, I think, for him to feel like he didn't have to f- get it perfect and we were going to just take our time with it and find this performance that really did have to toe that emotional line, that had to feel so truthful. He had to get all the motions right, but more than that, what was happening behind his eyes had to be something real. There had to be an actual connection. Is there an element, we'll jump into casting here, is there an element here of avoiding the impersonation and the fact that maybe you did need someone like Tom Hanks <clears throat> in the sense that there was something that we were carrying to the performance. We have a relationship with Tom yes. Hanks outside of Mr. Rogers. I mean, there's versus, no versus doubt. If, versus like getting some like, I don't know, David Aiello like channeled Martin Luther King in this right. wonderful way. That's right. great. But that seems like you couldn't maybe necessarily go get some great English actor to channel, right. you know, to, 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 to perfectly impersonate it. It's like almost you needed a little bit of that, like of what Tom Hanks was. I and, mean, I, I, I was very clear that I didn't want an impersonation and I didn't want to see the work happening. I didn't want to feel like we as the audience were conscious of somebody trying to get all the mannerisms perfect or anything like that. And there's no doubt when you cast someone, you think about the fact that the public brings their own feelings about an actor to a role. Uh, to, to When they're watching that movie, they, they bring their own history with that person. And for whatever reason, we feel similarly to Tom as we do to Mr. Rogers. We have a warmth that we feel toward him, that we feel toward very few actors in the world. And um, so it kind of always felt like it was either going to be Tom Hanks or somebody no one had ever heard of. But there weren't very many people who, there was pretty much nobody else who has that same history, who we are bringing some part of ourselves to that table of how we feel about them. It's our relationship to that actor. Because that the, the, the purity of Mr. Rogers can just teeter you know, if yeah. in, in, I think the shtick or whatever, but I think there's something yeah. about the purity of that we have, you know, that Tom in a different way. But there's there's something about him that has yes. like a presence. And also if an actor brings an inherent darkness, you know, yeah. there's something about and I love actors like that. You know, a lot of actors that I like to cast are actors who I feel like you, you can't figure out why. But there's something that feels just inherently dark in there. You know, um, part of why I love Matthew Reese is I feel like he's an actor who's very in touch with his anger. Um, but Tom doesn't have that. There doesn't feel like there's a hidden agenda or a hidden darkness that we're always aware of boiling under the surface, you know? And the other thing that I loved is the way that, uh, I guess it's, uh, you tell me about maybe it's mostly uh, the makeup or but some people on your team, one of the things that I loved is they also found a nice balance. You know, oftentimes these people are rewarded for like, oh my God, it's amazing. He looks just like, no, we and, and this was this I really was, found a really nice line between yeah. maintaining a little bit of Tom but enough that oh he's Mr. Rogers and that's a very tricky thing. That balance. was my my vision of it from the very beginning and in my first phone call with Tom I said this is I will not do any prosthetics. I'm not interested in making you look identically to him, but for me that's more a personal taste thing because I feel like prosthetics become a barrier between the actor and the audience. I'm such a performance-based director. That's what I care about more than anything else in a movie. I care about everything else a lot, but performance is number one for me. And for me, prosthetics tend to be a barrier between us and the performance. Mm -hmm. And so I said to him really early on, I'm not interested in any of that. I'm not interested in you looking just like him. 
that will distance us and it has to be the most intimate portrait of this person and it's really a character study and I had had um, this great experience with doing fake eyebrows in Can You Ever Forgive Me? We gave Melissa McCarthy these fake eyebrows that really transformed her face and helped turn her into Lee and Kala Davy was my makeup artist who had also done that movie she and I talked early on about how the eyebrows were the key to getting Mr. Rogers right and you know they become this frame to the face Mm. and if we could just do that with a very simple wig nothing else was needed you know Mm -hmm. he he obviously he also lost some weight for the part but um (laughs) but in general it was Never about trying to make his face look identical to his. And I just didn't want you to be aware the whole time of like, look at that fake nose or look at that chin or that chipped tooth or any of that. I just didn't want you to be... I get distracted by those things, truthfully. When I watch movies, I get very, very distracted by that type of thing. And when you're searching for the actor that you know underneath all of that, Yeah, especially if it's somebody that you're as familiar with and you adore as much as Tom Hanks. You're always looking for that person somewhere. They felt really, they found a perfect balance. I mean, she Thank did an amazing you. job. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about, because we also, you're, it's also really interesting, the two worlds. I mean, obviously, yeah. I mean, some of this is obvious. Lloyd is at a, at a, at a different, you know, there, there's these things, but there's an element here of the way that you use the models. Mm. And then before you go into that Nick Drake song, yeah. your brother's music mm-hmm. also kind of finds a nice yes. toe the line of like, referencing a Mr. Rogers, but then also kind of like a, a more but modern. taking it yeah. bigger. And, yeah. and, and so I'm, I, I'm curious because that, that seems to be a perfect framing device, but also it, it's this element of, of how we're going to connect this New York right. world and this Lloyd world to. It's the bigger storytelling question of the movie that we were grappling with when trying to figure out how to make this movie that went into kind of every conversation with every department. Like you pointed out, the music, the miniatures, you know, the question became, we have Mr. Rogers' world, which is bright and colorful and has this simple music that we're all sort of familiar with. Not simple in a bad way, but it ha- tends to have four instruments and be sort of, you know, from a very specific era. And um, and it has a f- specific cadence and it has a specific tone. And then we have Lloyd, who's this very smart, very quick-witted journalist in New York City in a different world whose life is chaotic, who has a baby, who's got, like, noise all around him. You know, it's sort of the opposite. But we also didn't want to feel like these worlds didn't exist within the same movie. Mm -hmm. So that's also something that has to be created, right? We're also doing a period piece. It's 1998, but that's actually a period piece. When you really think about it, that is It's not... hard being roughly our age and thinking I know is it is. It is. <laughs> but the truth of the matter is nobody, not every person had a cell phone in their pocket at that time. You know, we didn't, there were so many differences and differences in the sounds and the ways that the city looked and the way we dressed. But so we had this concept, which was we, we would use the rules of Mr. Rogers, which he had very strict, specific rules for his world. Things were tangible. Things were well thought out and planned out, but they were kind of homemade. Everything had a pretty lo-fi quality to it. A lot of things were made out of cardboard or balsa wood or, you know, these miniatures were, they were very practically done. Um, And so we wanted to kind of use those rules. He also had very specific rules about 
how he edited the show, how slow the pace was in order to have kids understand it, and his kind of timing. So we wanted to use that as inspiration for the entire movie. So when we were breaking from that, we were consciously breaking from that. When we were expanding upon that, we were consciously expanding upon that. So for example, in that opening sequence, we started Mr. Rogers. We need to branch ourselves out into Lloyd's world. We start with the music of Mr. Rogers. We started from a tune from Mr. Rogers, which then my brother wrote his own version of, and then it built, built, and built, and built, and then kind of exploded up in the same way that the miniature boomed up, and you go from seeing the miniature that we're also familiar with of from the Mr. Rogers neighborhood, but as the camera booms up, we reveal there's an even bigger miniature of all of Pittsburgh behind that miniature. Um, so it was really fun and challenging to figure out how these worlds would build, how we could take Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood and expand it out to be a full film. That was the joy of the craft of this movie, which was really, it took so much love and work, but it was also the fun of it. And um, and I think that contrast, the ways in which those two worlds are separate, and then when do they meld together, and when do they stay separate was always our, our question. Because another, another, another problem becomes, right, and, and maybe this is this is from working with Matthew and and, mm-hmm. and Tom here, but there's a pacing thing here. Yeah, you know, and there's because the other thing that's really tricky about Mr. Rogers is like the cadence, right? And yeah. we were talking, and, and like so suddenly it's one thing for him to talk to us that way through these old cameras and stuff as right. if we're on a show, but there's another thing like you have to make that human interaction right. feel like right. Like, and I'm we, sure that's what happens with real people because he made these connections. But right. the fact that he's so much like that, I guess in real life well we we heard from people over and over again in our research that when you were with fred rogers it felt like time slowed down he controlled time and that must have affected your directing not only entirely and so that meant and you know matthew is one of those people in real life who speaks really quickly who's so smart who's always thinking and that was part of what i wanted to cast in Lloyd was somebody who kind of has energy pulsing through them and is has a fast pace, who has an opposite energy to Fred in some way, um, but who gets sort of almost put into a trance by Fred because what we were told was, you know, when you would go in to interview Fred, what often would happen was he would slowly turn that interview around on whoever was asking him questions. And before you know it, he's asking you about your childhood and then you're crying and then you're talking about something and you're going wait I know I was supposed to be interviewing you and we heard that over and over again so playing with time became really fun and it was something Jody my cinematographer and I Jody Lee Lipes talked a lot about was how do we craft these scenes from a from a camera blocking point of view where we're crafting the space between the lines and we're giving space for the pauses. We're giving space for the the moments where there's sort of internal dueling happening between these two men. Um, we talk about this one scene where they're interviewing each other. It it has sort of the intensity of an of a duel, but they're never moving. It's all what's happening behind their eyes. Um, and I rehearsed with the actors too to really kind of get because I I could have done that just in the edit, but I wanted us to have it on set too. I wanted that pacing to be something that was so baked into the way they were talking to each other that, and sometimes that meant, you know, Matthew would ask Fred a question and I would ask Tom to sit and listen for so long before he responded, which is not what actors tend to do. They tend to think about what's my next line and go on to their next line. And it it was 
pulling him back, forcing him to listen, forcing him to slow down, forcing both of them to slow down, and almost to an agonizing degree for them sometimes. I'm now hearing while we're doing press about how agonizing it all was. <laughs> but um, In the sense that he, he has a certain natural cadence to him that he's not yeah, used to. Yeah, Tom is like a hilarious, chipper, really fun, boisterous guy who kind of drinks coffee all day and is much more like me gesticulating all the time and very, you know, he's got energy coursing through his body. And Fred was still, you know, he was a little bit like zen in a way that um, it's hard to harness sometimes, but it was so intentional. It was such an intentional stillness. And um, so it can't be like a limp stillness. Mm. There's like an electricity behind that stillness that had to be harnessed, that had to feel really real. And I was saying, I felt like I was sort of the, my job was to be the truth police. You know, I was on set to, to craft these scenes with these actors, but I was also there to go, I didn't feel like you really asked that question. Can you, can you ask it again? And, but really ask, or when you say thank you there, can you really thank him Mm -hmm. and do whatever you have to do to really, truly thank him? And it was like recognizing what it is to, to play someone who is so intentional and so present in every moment. You don't get to be lazy for one word. You have to be conscious with every word. It's a lot of work. Because even that line, uh, there's a, a, he's on the phone with him and he says, you know what the most important thing to me right now is, is you. That line. I know. If you tried that line, if I tried that line on my, my seven-year-old, I would get, you know, it's like, that's like that element of being present and delivering that line. It's like, it only works if it's real. Yeah. It, it only works if yeah. it's real. I mean, and that's what we came across in our research about Fred that was all also staggering was just everyone said he was who he was. Mm. What you saw on the show, that was Fred. Uh, your cinematographer, Jody, uh, you were talking about kind of helping figure out the, this this kind of dueling sense and this pacing sense. Um, the other thing I want about this is is that, you know, the Mr. Rogers world, that Pittsburgh world, mm. um, there's something very textural and also realistic about it, but there's also, it, it, it would be a tricky thing to do. I imagine part of this is using 16 millimeter to some degree, right? No, yeah, we, it, sh- we shot them in on old tube cameras. Oh, really? Okay. These Ikigami, <laughs> we shot them on tape. <laughs> um, no, they shot the original show on these tube cameras, right. which we went to great lengths we actually tried to track down the physical, actual cameras that they had used, um, and they had donated them to a high school in Pittsburgh, and then it turned out the high school had been demolished, and the cameras got demolished along with the high school. So we f- eventually found them in England and brought them in. I was also talking, though, about uh, Fred's Pittsburgh, though, you know, yes, his home, Fred's it, Pittsburgh. It, you know, and that, that sense yeah. of it's... Um, it feels like a very real Pittsburgh, but there's a there's a sense yeah. of texture to it. That's really yeah. it's really Jody did some great work. Well, there. Pittsburgh's a beautiful city to photograph, but just speaking about the neighborhood, one funny thing that I hadn't really thought about until you were just saying that was that one thing Jody and I went through was we were all trying to recreate Mr. Rogers' neighborhood, and we realized we were all basing some at least of it on our own memories. And that we had to kind of check our memories at the door because Mm. there was a nostalgia and a warmth that washes over your own memory of the show that may not be rooted in how it really looked. But it was very funny because we were going, no, 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 that door was a little bit over there. And you were like, why do I think that? But it has to do with like you have this childhood version of exactly how the show went and you think it's right, but it's really your own memory failing you. Uh, I want to read, I never 
pull things from press notes, but there was this quote from Tom Hanks that, uh, in terms of you convincing him to do it, that, that struck with me. Uh, she very specifically came back to me with a perspective of the power of the force of Mr. Rogers as opposed to the plot that goes on. I just knew that she was coming at this with, uh, with this is the red dot of what this movie is and that it is the chosen power of empathy. You know, it's rarer and rarer today what you did with this film. It's rarer and rarer that uh, a director who has a very a sensibility and a voice is able to find a project and, and plug him or herself into it mm. as something that exists. Like the, we have so many less of these films. Yeah. It, it, so many more of the directors that you and I probably both love. It, it's more the, the diary of a teenage girl path, right. like sure. many, many years and like right. eating and breathing and things. And this is your second straight film where you have really found a way into a story that already existed and, and breathe life into it. I'm wondering if you could talk about that process because at the end of the day, anybody that's seen your work, this yeah. is, this is this, these, all these things that we're talking about and these problems of like solving is, 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 yeah. is you. And I'm wondering about that because there's also an element here, which is, you know, I think you're the hundredth guest on here. And, um, in general, I think you are, there's a lot of filmmakers that have been on twice. You're the first woman that has had a scripted narrative who's been on here twice in the three years that have had two projects, you wow. know. I mean, Barry's been on and Luke has been on, but yeah. you know, it's very it's very rare also. Like, unfortunately, I don't know that I'm gonna see Lynn Ramsey again for another three, four years or something, right. you know, and, and it's like, I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit about that because it's wonderful sure. what you did in these two films, finding your way into that. Well, I will say that is part of the reason that I have directed movies that I didn't write, even though I am a writer and I love writing my own movies, is part of it is that I'm aware of the fact that women typically, historically, have taken longer to make their second and third films. You know, I heard some statistic that I'm not totally sure if it's exactly accurate, that men on average take three years to make their second film and women take eight. And I was so aware that I didn't want that to be the case, that that was part of why I, you know, scripts, as you know, I spent 10 years developing Diary, eight eight years developing it before I was really rolling into production. So um, knowing that I wanted to be somebody who continued to work, that continued to make movies that could come out and I could feel like I could capitalize on the momentum that I had going coming out of Diary of a Teenage Girl, I did start considering and taking on projects that I had not originated which sort of goes against part of my own ethos as an artist, but I had to figure out a way if I was going to do that to make them my own and to make them feel like mine. I am a writer. That means I approach these scripts with a certain amount of work that I'm going to do on the script no matter what. And I probably do more work on the scripts of these either together with the writers, like in this case, or on Can You Ever Forgive Me? I did my own work on that script, but... I do a huge amount of work on the script before I'm anywhere near production because I have to know it inside and out as though I had written it myself. I have to work even harder if I haven't been the, the first one to put it down on paper. Um, you know, for this project, Noah and Micah and I already had a relationship because we'd worked together on Transparent for a little while. And I loved them as writers and knew them to be incredibly smart, emotionally present people and so we could sit together in a room for months you know we really could spend the time digging deep on the script and any I'm never going to approach a script that I didn't write and go well they wrote it this way so I've got to direct it this way like no no my job as the director is to make sure every single thing makes sense to me emotionally and if it doesn't we're changing it to my version of it I mean that not to say I'm some 
dictator or something, but I know the only way my movies will work is if I have my own clear vision of it, and I have to have my own clear vision. I'm going to be the person on set who people are going to come up to me and go, why is this scene in this set instead of that set? And I have to have an answer for that. Or which cup do we need, this one or that one? Or should he be walking here or whatever? You know, there's 10,000 questions a day that you have to answer as a director. And some you've never thought of, and if you don't have... Some you've never thought of, but they have to, they have, to have somewhere been a decision you made, right? Mm-hmm. So I take responsibility for the script is the only way I can say it. Like whether I'm physically rewriting the script, whether I am going through every single word of the script and making sure it feels right, I'm taking responsibility for the script when it becomes mine that I'm gonna direct. In this case, I had these two wonderful writers to do it with me, to work Mm -hmm. with me, where I could say, guys, this is how I'm taking responsibility for the script. I need this to happen. This is where what I'm missing here. This is an image I need in the script. I need this. And they can go, okay, I don't think it should go there though. What if it goes here? And I'm like, great, great. I want it to go here. and. I'm going to do a version of this scene. I'm going to send it to you guys. You take a pass. Let's figure out how to make it. But I'm I'm doing that for the exact purpose of what you're saying, which is I, I have a very clear voice. I have a vision. And I'm going to be the one who ultimately has to enact it. I'm going to be the one the actors look to. I'm going to be the one the production designer looks to. I'm going to be the one the costume designer looks to and goes, what do you want? And I have to know the answer. And if I just took a script that I didn't write at all, that I didn't get to work on at all, that I didn't get to take responsibility for, I would fail. I don't, I don't think I could do it. So it's a little bit of a shortcut to come into a script that's so beautifully well-developed as this one was and be able to take responsibility and only spend, say, six months making the script my own and making me, you know, getting it into my body but it's something that I have to do before I direct it. It's wonderful. To, it, it, I mean, everything you just said is perfect, but there's also just this element of like, I mean, I love these projects. I love Diary. I love these projects that take, you know, years and years, but it seems as if this model of, of being a director with a voice is like this, like I'm going to kill myself doing <laughs> this personal project for like six, seven years. And it's like well, every yeah. day, you know, and it, it's, it's wonderful because like, honestly, all the films that I grew up with in Hollywood and watching old Hollywood, it was all, it was all great I directors. Mean, the finding... directors who I admire are the ones who are those auteurs in that really major way. And I do think it's something, it's something I struggle with is like, how can I be the type of auteur or whatever you want to think of it as, which I, I know a lot of um, writers who I love and respect really, take umbrage with this whole director auteur idea because this whole film by thing is such BS because we make films by huge collaboration and that's the truth of the matter but regardless the people who I tend to respect are people who have a vision and the thing is is anyone who worked on this movie or any of my movies with me will tell you I know what I want regardless of (laughs) all the rest of this Mm -hmm. you know I fight for these movies like they (laughs) mean everything to me and that means you know that I'm it means guarding it with this ferocity that is just um it's having a very clear artistic vision and fighting for it in every way you can um this might be a weird one to end on but uh I have a a account for this one and I follow all the filmmakers that have been on and there was one point where you cut your hair and it looks lovely, but and Thanks. he said you had said I have to I have to do this for um, an upcoming project I can't talk about now. As a director, behind the scenes, one could shave their head or have Rapunzel That's hair. That's true. I, I'm wondering. And I did it, have Rapunzel. I'm wondering if um, if 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 you are looking to get back in front of the camera or do some kind of performance thing here. Um, 
Yeah. So, you know, part of what I've always talked about is the reason that I think I'm a decent director is because I'm an actor and that's where I began. And I haven't done it in a while. You know, I haven't acted in really like 10 years. Um, and so, yeah, I've got something brewing that I can't quite talk about, but I'm just exercising different parts of my creative muscles these days, which feels great and also feels like it's reconnecting me. People ask me all the time, like, uh, so you picked directing over acting, huh? And I'm like, I never picked anything. Mm. I, I just want to make things. And whether that means writing, directing, acting, mm. I, I just want to tell stories. And as, a, as an actor, the whole reason I wanted to be an actor was because I wanted to tell interesting stories. I wanted to have voices out there that weren't being represented. I wanted to access something deep in my humanity and it's the same reason I wanted to write and it's the same reason I wanted to direct so for me I'll just keep saying yes to things that scare me and this the reason I cut my hair off was yes to something that scared me <laughs> that's what I imagine because I imagine there's something if that so informs your directing I imagine it's a muscle that you almost I kind of think wanna, you, you know get back every director should have to act once every 10 years you know <laughs> I think it should be almost a prerequisite I mean we ask actors to do a lot we ask them to do some scary, vulnerable things. And I have always felt, you know, whether it was like the first time I remember I was directing a scene from Diary at the Sundance Labs. And I was asking my actress to be close to naked in front of the camera. And so I just took my shirt off while we direct, while I directed her. And I did that just in this weird moment of like, I know what you're going through. Let me have some solidarity with you. That was just to be like, I know what this feels like. I, I can be vulnerable with you. Mm -hmm. It's the same kind of instinct, which is just saying like, I don't want to ask things of people that I'm not comfortable doing myself. And so how can I push myself and in what, that same that's way? That's what makes you realize you have to clear the stage for, uh, for, the, for the first singing scene. Exactly. Um, thank you for coming in and doing this. It's, it's always great to talk to you. It's, it's not lovely to talk to you. And uh, uh, you don't know what your next thing is, do you? I don't. You don't. I'm, I'm trying to let myself you know but these movies you have made, been made, pretty back to back <laughs> yeah i've made three movies i remember, in five I remember years when period. you're doing press on forgive me like yeah. it was like you were i was back in post back, for this yeah. yeah no i think weren't you back and forth to pittsburgh at that point i was probably well it depends on if i saw you yes for parts of it i was back and forth to pittsburgh that's no great. i was i was That's totally so back wonderful and forth that you've got two films like this back to back thank you congratulations thank you <laughs>